This is 99% Invisible. I'm Roman Mars. In 1968, the police department in Menlo Park, California hired a new police chief. His name was Victor Sazankis. And Chief Sazankis's main goal was to reform the police department's image, which wasn't great at the time. That's our own Delaney Hall. Because this was the 1960s, and even in Menlo Park, a small city with manicured lawns and wide suburban streets, it had been a turbulent decade. There were big student-led anti-war demonstrations at Stanford University, which is right nearby. Joan Baez, the folk singer, created a commune called Struggle Mountain in the foothills above the city. And leaders in the African-American community were organizing protests to demand better treatment and services. The Menlo Park police had clashed with these protesters, sometimes violently. And after years and years of this, the department had a pretty rough reputation. Had a reputation for being a very tough police department, a very aggressive police department, and somewhat of a very uh, anti-race kind of a police department. That's Dominic Peloso. He was hired in 1970 by Chief Sizenkis, the guy who wanted to change this culture. He just, he's one of these type of guys that would come into a room and would just fill in the room, you know, and everybody kind of sits back and says, uh, I think we better listen and go along with this guy. Chief Sazankis had hired Dominic right out of the Jesuit seminary, where Dominic had been studying to be a priest. Sazankis liked hiring officers from non-traditional law enforcement backgrounds and with higher levels of education. It was just one of his strategies for reforming the department. He also let his officers grow their hair out and have beards and mustaches. He changed all the pseudo-military titles to more corporate ones. Sergeants became managers, for example, and lieutenants became directors. Officers in the department had mixed feelings about all these changes, but one was more controversial than the others. For a long time, officers in Menlo Park had worn a variation of the traditional dark blue police uniform. But Chief Sazankis thought that style was too intimidating and aggressive. So the chief came up with something totally different. It was really a nice, kind of a dark green blazer with some black thread in it. Uh, We wore pastel-colored solid shirts with a tie and slacks. Instead of a metal badge, the blazer sported an embroidered patch that sort of looked like a coat of arms. Guns and handcuffs remained hidden under the jacket. All in all, the officers looked kind of like grown-up prep school students, but with guns. They even had pocket protectors with the Menlo Park Police logo on it that would slide into the pocket of their dress shirts. It seems like the the total effect is he was trying to demilitarize the look and attitude of the department. Yeah, I think that would be a correct uh, statement. Uh, A lot of the guys who join police departments are from the military, and because of the nature of the work, um, it it can be very militaristic, shall we say, an organization and training and all those kinds of things. And he was trying to calm it down. But Chief Sazankis was also messing with a tradition that would prove extremely hard to change. Because the blue military-style uniform had a history that went back more than 100 years. What we've asked police officers to wear over the years says a lot about what we've expected of them and how we feel about them. It even says a lot about how they feel about themselves. Back in America's colonial days, law enforcement looked really different than it does now. In New England, there were these informal groups, generally known as the Watch, that patrolled neighborhoods looking for crime. 
no uniforms, no sort of organizational policies that they had to follow. It was basically every able man. Chad Posick teaches in the Department of Criminal Justice and Criminology at Georgia Southern University. If they saw somebody that needed help, a fire, crime on the corner, it would just be an informal group that would sort of respond to that. So that was in the North. In Southern communities leading up to the Civil War, there were roving patrols that were responsible for suppressing slave revolts and tracking down runaway slaves. They worked for large plantation owners. So very much in the South, early policing was tied to uh, slavery, where in the North, it was more policing crime in these large urban areas. These unofficial patrols were how early law enforcement worked for decades. It wasn't until the 1820s that modern policing began to take shape, thanks to a British statesman named Sir Robert Peel. Before Peel came along, policing in London looked a lot like it did in colonial America, informal and loosely organized. And Peel recognized that there were problems with this model. People not taking it seriously, being drunk on the job, not showing up, falling asleep. And so he, what he wanted to do is create a police department that was based on certain principles. And after years of pushing for reform, Peel succeeded. In 1829, he helped found the London Metropolitan Police, the first modern, full-time, citywide police department. British officers are still known as Bobbies in honor of Robert Bobby Peel. In Ireland, they call them Peelers with a little less affection. Peel required his officers to wear uniforms that would distinguish them from citizens they were meant to serve. But Peel was also sensitive to how British people might perceive this new police force. Yes, that was a huge concern. Because for so many years, the people were ruled by the military in a a military state. Peel wanted the new police uniforms to stand apart from the redcoats of the British military. That's sort of where we get our first blue uniform that was very professional looking. Um, And it was actually stood in stark contrast to the red that you saw with the military. Gradually, Peel's ideas and his blue uniform made their way to the United States. By the early 1900s, police departments across the country had adopted aspects of the style and approach pioneered by the London Metropolitan Police. This included a quasi-military structure and the goal of crime prevention. But there were still some problems. Most early police departments in the U.S. allied themselves with the rich and the powerful, like local politicians and business leaders. And you might be thinking, it's still like that now. And you might be right, but it was worse then. Like a new mayor would get elected and then would appoint a hand-picked police chief. Then the police chief would hire their family, their friends, to become the officers of that department. So very political. And, and obviously, if you're the police chief and you sort of work for the mayor, the local politician, you're going to serve their purposes first and the community maybe secondarily. It was a patronage system. And in most departments, recruits didn't receive any special training. They were just handed a badge and a nightstick and sent out on patrol. Despite the spiffy new uniforms and their newly organized approach, public trust in the police was dismal. So a reform movement begins to grow across America. And then in 1929, President Herbert Hoover convenes a group called the Wickersham Commission, to conduct the first national study of the American criminal justice system. They look at the system from top to bottom. 
And they basically saw the infiltration of politics into policing as a huge problem. And they said that we need to change up how we do things. The Wickersham report shocked the country by exposing widespread police abuse. It described police routinely beating suspects and holding them illegally for lengthy questioning. And you might be thinking, it's still like that now. And you might be right. But it was worse then. The report included some pretty disturbing accounts, like a suspect who was held by the ankles from a third-story window and another who was forced to stand in the morgue with his hands on the body of a murder victim. This report, the Wickersham report, really was sort of this turning point and we need to do something different in policing. And I think that's what led into this professional era. This new professional era, which continued up into the 1960s and 70s, was characterized by an emphasis on policing as a skilled profession. This old educational film called Your Police lays it out. Police departments use modern science to protect you, such as teletype, photography, two-way radio, expert firearms training as standardized by the FBI National Academy, Accident prevention installations and other... Now police were trained to use modern tools and technology. And one of the leading voices for this new method was a guy named August Vollmer. He'd been the first police chief of Berkeley, California, and he helped to write the Wickersham report. Vollmer got his officers to use motorcycles and patrol cars instead of just walking around. That way they could cover bigger areas more efficiently. He was also one of the first chiefs in the U.S. to insist his department use fingerprinting and blood and fiber analysis to help solve crimes. And under his influence, California became a hotbed of police reform from the 1920s through the 1960s, leading, of course, to stuff like Chief Sazankis' blazer uniform experiment in Menlo Park. For a few years, it seemed like Chief Sazankis' reforms might be working. In blazers and ties and pocket protectors, the Menlo Park police definitely looked less intimidating. Here's Dominic Peloso again. He eventually became assistant chief under Sazankis. It wasn't like we slacked off and became, you know, like, oh, mercy and forgiveness and love and peace and all that kind of stuff, you know? Oh, no. But the way we did it and the style that we gave to people, I think, um, made them feel a lot better about us. And he built up a lot of really good rapport uh, with the community. There was even an early study suggesting that altercations between citizens and the police had declined because of the Blazers. The study was later challenged, but when it first came out, word began to spread and a few other departments across the country adopted the Blazer style. But the uniform experiment also drew a line within the department. On one side, there were the guys, like Dominic, who liked what the Blazers stood for. They embraced that Chief Sazankis wanted the department to have a calmer, more professional image. There's a lot of guys who want to do this job, but don't want to go out there and knock heads or shoot people or, you know, whatever like that. Uh, They just want to do the best for the community. And I think with our uniform, people who were applying got more the sense that we really were community-minded, helping people. On the other side were the old-school police officers, who missed the traditional uniform and all that it represented. They enjoyed the ego stuff that goes with it. Um, They also enjoy that sense of authority um, that you show, um, the clearness of who they are. With the blazer, it just wasn't always that clear. You know, I'd stop a person, let's say, for a violation, and I'd walk up and say, can I see your license, you know? And they'd look at me and say, well, let's see your license. You know, who are you? 
<laughs> they need to point to the little patch and say, well, I'm the police, you know. This is retired Sergeant Van Trask. He worked under Sazankas, and generally he liked the chief's style and approach. But he admits that it caused some complications. You you didn't have that much recognition as a cop, so you, you kind of... You, there's a tendency to get more... Who are you? You know, hey, I, you know, I'm the police. You know, sure you are. Many officers got so frustrated that they quit. The numbers we've heard on this vary. Van said about half the department left. Dominic thinks it was even higher. I would guess that in his first four years as police chief, we had about a 75% turnover. People just left and went to other departments. But I think they just couldn't take his, his overall thinking, his out-of-the-box thinking, his philosophy and stuff. So they all just, just abandoned and eventually Sazankas left too, to take over as the chief of a police department in Stamford, Connecticut. You know, there's some talk that uh, he was actually uh, kind of encouraged um, to leave. And not long after he left, the department switched back to the traditional uniform style. Sazankas passed away in 1980. The year that Sazankas joined the Menlo Park Police Department, 1968, represented an important turning point for law enforcement in the U.S. The community policing approach championed by Sazankas would continue to gain traction through the 80s and 90s as departments across the country tried to build better, less combative relationships with their local communities. But there had always been a tension between the more community-oriented side of policing and the more military side, and that was about to intensify. In recent years, crime in this country has grown nine times as fast as population. At the current rate, the crimes of violence in America will double by 1972. We cannot accept that kind of future for America. In 1968, Richard Nixon ran for president on a promise of law and order. He tapped into all the paranoia and unease that had grown during the turmoil of the 1960s. His campaign ads were full of these scary images of urban unrest and rioting. And they ended with his slogan written across the screen. Vote like your whole world depended on it. I pledge to you, the wave of crime is not going to be the wave of the future in America. Shortly after taking office, Nixon vowed to fight the war on crime, which had been started by his predecessor, Lyndon Johnson. He also declared a war on drugs. Again, criminal justice professor Chad Posick. One, I think the language is very important, right? You don't have, say, drug prevention or crime prevention. It's, it's the war, war on drugs, the war on crime. So you do see an escalation during this time on how crime is responded to. And it's responded to like they're responding to war. War, of course, requires specialized equipment. And around this same time, the government established the Law Enforcement Assistance Administration, a now-defunct federal agency that gave lots of money to local police departments so they could buy newfangled crime-fighting tools. You see this uptick in support for uh, all sorts of policing, but especially riot gear and SWAT teams and armored vehicles and, and, and weapons and bulletproof vests and those types of things. Even small rural departments were getting their 
hands on stuff like helicopters and serious crowd control gear like shields and helmets. And new paramilitary divisions of the police, like SWAT teams, began using this gear. Some exchanged the traditional blue uniform for camouflage outfits, known as the battle dress uniform. They began to look more military. As this kind of equipment and style spread, so did more militarized policing tactics. Conducting raids, um, crackdowns, and harshly enforcing laws. And they're behind the mask that they wear in riot gear or the big, huge vest that they wear in the SWAT team. This trend continued to the 80s and 90s in lots of police departments across the country. It accelerated in many places after 9-11 as police departments became closer with federal law enforcement agencies and started thinking of themselves as part of the first line of defense in a new war, the War on Terror. New federal programs emerged that sent surplus military equipment from Iraq and Afghanistan to local police departments across the country. Which brings us to today. Yeah, Brianna, this crowd just got very agitated because the police just arrested someone. They're basically confronting the police, yelling at them over this arrest. Back up, please! Across the country, there have been highly publicized protests against police shootings of unarmed black men, women, and even children. And these protests have sparked bigger conversations about police violence and also how our police look. For several nights this week, this was Ferguson, Missouri. Tanks, combat gear, assault rifles. It looked like a military operation. You must disperse immediately. And that's because police departments... The current mistrust of police seems to mirror what was going on in Menlo Park back in 1968, pre-Blazer, but on a more dramatic scale. Back in the 1960s, it was big conversations about the role of police in the community that led Chief Sizankas to make changes to the Menlo Park uniform. Today, at least so far, no departments have taken steps that drastic. But in Minneapolis, they're taking a small step in that general direction. Minneapolis SWAT teens will soon unveil a new look to make them appear less intimidating. In February of 2016, the Minneapolis Police Department changed the color of their SWAT uniforms from a military green to a more traditional navy blue. This happened about four months after the city saw widespread protests after the police shot and killed an unarmed black man named Jamar Clark. The Minneapolis Police Department declined to talk with us about the uniform change, but they've made it clear in other interviews that this color change is about public perception and rebranding. We are police. We are not military. We don't train with the military. We're not associated with the military. We're the Minneapolis Police Department, and uh, we want to be reflective of our own community and our own image. What's not totally clear is if the color of the uniform actually matters. I mean, they could wear pink, but if they're toting guns and rubber bullets and mace um, and tasers and everything else. This is Candace Montgomery. She's an activist with Black Lives Matter, and she's taken part in protests in Minneapolis against the police. A color's not going to change that dynamic. An entire overhaul of the policing system is going to change that dynamic in people's responses. Of course, the problems police are facing today can't be solved by uniform change alone. But a change in uniform can be an important symbol, a way for police departments to signal to their communities that they want to have a better relationship. 
In the case of Chief Sizankas in Menlo Park, the uniform experiment did help lead to bigger changes. Requiring officers to wear blazers meant a certain kind of officer was drawn to the police department, the kind who was willing to get on board with the more significant reforms that Sizankas wanted to make. And even though the department eventually abandoned the blazers, many of the other changes stuck. Here's former Menlo Park Assistant Chief Dominic Peloso again. Vic was definitely ahead of his time. And, you know, as with most people who are ahead of their time, uh, you, you don't have a crowd of people that all kind of stand up and cheer for you. But it would be very interesting because within, I'd say, 10 or 15 years, almost every police department in our area, even though they didn't change the uniform or the titles or the organizational chart, were taking on that real big kind of community policing uh, thing. They went ahead and did it because that was the t- signs of the times. Invisible was produced this week by Delaney Hall with Katie Mingle, Sam Greenspan, Sharif Youssef, Kurt Kolstad, Avery Truffleman, and me, Roman Mars. Special thanks this week to Daryl Lindsay of the Menlo Park Police Department, Richard Johnson, Robert Mauro, David Cooper, and Tom DuPont. We are a project of 91.7 KALW in San Francisco and produced out of the offices of ArcSign, an architecture and interiors firm in beautiful downtown Oakland, California. Some of the music we use this week is from OK Akumi. You can find them and all of their fantastic label mates on Hell Audio. That's a Utah-based label for electronic and experimental music at hellaudio.org. 99% Invisible is supported in part by Squarespace. Whether the story behind your passion is out of the ordinary or simply out of this world, you should tell it in an unforgettable way. Squarespace helps you do just that with the only websites designed to showcase what makes your passion worth pursuing. Start your free trial today at squarespace.com slash invisible. You should. Squarespace. 99% Invisible is supported in part by Casper, an online retailer of premium, obsessively engineered mattresses at a shockingly fair price. It arrives vacuum-sealed in this big box, and you cut it open, and air rushes in, and the kids in the house scream with delight, and when all the excitement is over you'll have the best mattress of your life. They have a risk-free trial and return policy, so you can try sleeping on your Casper for 100 days with free delivery and painless returns. The mattresses are made in America, and pricing is just $500 for a twin-size mattress and $950 for a king-size mattress. 99% Invisible listeners can get $50 towards any mattress purchased by visiting casper.com slash 99PI and using the promo code 99PI at checkout. Terms and conditions apply. And finally, this show and Radiotopia from PRX is made possible by our generous donors around the globe, the Knight Foundation and MailChimp. MailChimp just launched a new online store called Freddy & Co. That's F-R-E-D-D-I-E-A-N-D dot C-O, Freddy & Co. And it's a place where you can buy limited edition products made by cool companies with 100% of the profit going to charities that MailChimp loves. Their first collaboration is with the Australian Odd Pairs Sock Company. They make really cool socks. And the charity partner is Lost and Found Youth, an Atlanta-based organization dedicated to ending homelessness of LGBTQ youth. Check it out at freddyand.co. This week on our 99PI MailChimp newsletter, the surprisingly long history of fire grenades, the technology that predates the fire extinguisher. They're glass balls filled with toxic, flame-suppressing chemicals that you toss into a raging inferno. They're the most aerodynamic, fun, and generally ill-advised way to fight fires. 
My boy Maslow agrees. I think a fire grenade will sound like this. Subscribe and get that story at 99pi.org. You can find the show and like the show on Facebook. You can follow us all on Twitter and Instagram. But the best way to explore the 99% invisible activity that shapes the design of our world is to click around the hundreds and hundreds of stories on 99pi.org. Radiotopia.